Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast, it's all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? And I'm your host, Darren Johnson. Welcome to episode 107. I'll bet a lot of you are tuning in for the very first time. If that's you, a special welcome to you. Welcome to the show. And for those who are back again, welcome back. For everyone, make sure you're subscribing and following this show so that you do not miss an episode. Imagine every Tuesday morning, you get a fresh new episode of I Dare You right there. So if you like what you hear, I invite you to follow us and subscribe. Now, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this interview uh, for episode 107. We have Dr. Sarah Kubrick, otherwise known as the Millennial Therapist. Many of you know Sarah. She has over 1.6 million followers on Instagram and growing. And you might wonder, what does it take to generate that type of following on Instagram? Yes, as a millennial, but also as an existential psychotherapist, also a consultant, a former columnist for USA Today, and author of a new book, It's On Me, an incredible book. She is passionate about helping people seek change and live authentic, free, and meaningful lives. And you might wonder, where did this interest in psychology come from? Fascinating, because it stems from her personal experience living through wars, navigating complex relationships herself, and continually learning what it means to be human. I'm excited about this interview. You know, I have been trying to get Sarah on the show for a long time, and it was worth the wait. I I have to tell you, she's just one of the nicest guests that I've ever had on the show. Now, we all agree, do we not, that every guest I've had on the show, they've just been good people. (laughs) And Sarah Kubrick, the millennial therapist, takes it up a notch. So what can you expect to learn in this interview? Well, you're going to learn about how it is up to us to change our life if that's what we want. We're also going to get a brand new definition of what it means to be truly authentic and to face head-on the issue of self-loss and what that means for all of us. And finally, we're going to attempt to answer the age-old questions of who am I and why am I here? Would you believe that we get into all of this and more in this interview? Well, tune in to find out. Let's get into episode 107. We have the millennial therapist on the show. Here, everyone, is Dr. Sarah Kubrick. Sarah, I am so honored to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about our chat today. So, Sarah, I have been following you for some time. I've been listening to a lot of interviews with you and existential psychotherapist. Let's start first there. Let's get that definition down, and then I'm going to go a lot of different directions with you. I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, Usually the question is, what is existential psychotherapy versus normal therapy? (laughs) And I just want to be like, there is no such thing. As (laughs) in every therapist practices from a theory or a modality. So the theory I practice from is existentialism, um, and which is rooted in philosophy. And so all that means is that the way I perceive a client and the way I perceive a problem is rooted in concepts from existential philosophy. So a lot of it, what I, when I see a client, I think about authenticity, about death, about isolation, about meaning, about authenticity, all these kind of core human experiences. Um, so that's kind of what it means to be an existential psychotherapist. Okay. Well, let me see if I can add to this. Um, mm-hmm. that you brought up authenticity. In your book, mm-hmm. It's On Me, which, by the way, uh, I was up late last night, early this morning, Congratulations on that book. Thank what, you so much. Uh, what a book. But one of the Thank many you. things that I got from that book is uh, authenticity. You have a different definition of authenticity. It's kind of been thrown around a lot, be more authentic, et cetera. How would an existential psychotherapist define or look at authenticity? 
Yeah, so I think we've kind of watered it down and started to misuse authenticity. An example I often have is like people will do something um, that's maybe inappropriate or hurtful or whatever. And then they'll go, well, I'm just being authentic. And it's kind of like the Trump card. You can't, you can't do anything about that. You go, oh, well, I can't silence your voice and I can't do any of these things. Like you are being authentic. Um, but what happens in those moments is that the person's actually not taking responsibility for what their, their actions. And I really like the, um, German sort of root of the term authenticity and Heidegger is the one that talked about authenticity a lot and so when you translate the word that he used I'm not going to try to say it because I would butcher it um <laughs> it, it, it essentially means to own and I think that's so interesting because to be authentic is to own who you are it's to own how you show up in the world it's ownness and so I think to be authentic is actually to be incredibly responsible and aware of how you're showing up in the world. Great definition. I, I live in Idaho, so we talked before we started recording, mm -hmm. and I've traveled overseas briefly, never lived anywhere else other mm -hmm. than the United States. Your journey is very different. And, and mm -hmm. let, take us back to where were you born? Where were you raised? And there's some experiences there that really have shaped you. Yeah, so I was born in Bosnia um, right before the Bosnian War. And so quickly after the war started we moved to serbia where i was raised and my mom is serbian my um so we went to serbia and uh we were there and then the nato bombings of 99 started and so those were obviously some very salient um childhood memories for me um and then after that war we immigrated to canada and so by the age of nine i've I've been through a lot, wars, wow. immigration, all of that was separation of family. My dad had to stay behind while my mom took us overseas. And so there was a lot going on that I would say shaped who I am today um, and also shaped my story. So Sarah, I, I don't know if I can really relate to that. By the way, I keep calling you Sarah, like I've known each other for, known you for 20 years. That's, it, I uh, love that. Okay? No, that's great. Please do okay. that. Yes. <laughs> I never asked if I should keep doctor or not. Okay, Sarah. No, so no, no, my no. childhood up until age nine was uh, Norman Rockwell type Americana, um, fairly <laughs> sta very stable family. And, and so I cannot relate to that. And how did you process that, I guess, trauma or what you were living mm -hmm. through? Um, I didn't. <laughs> For a long time, I didn't. So just as much as you think that your childhood is quote unquote normal, I thought my childhood was normal. That um, right? Anyone that I've really known, you know, growing up has gone through a very similar thing or the same thing. And then my families lived through all of it. And so there was something really interesting about normalizing such severe human experiences or human suffering and being like, oh, yeah, I remember that time in a bomb shelter like we would say that as if it was like a really relatable normal thing um I think when I moved to Canada I was a bit startled in terms of the the problems children had around me of like oh my god my parents didn't buy me the Nike shoes I wanted <laughs> and I remember receiving you know a pen for Christmas because that's all we could afford during the war it's like it was a Mickey Mouse pen and I was so stoked mm. about it so there were things that I couldn't fully comprehend but at the same time I still didn't realize that this wasn't normal or it wasn't common 
And so it was not till my mid to early 20s that I realized that it was actually trauma, that it, it actually impacted me, and that it was a unique life experience. Until that time, I really, I dismissed it, I minimized it, I normalized it. And it was not something that I thought about as like, wow, this big thing happened and it shaped who I am. That's incredible. And your Instagram following through the course of your career, your very young career, you've done a lot. My goodness. Uh, you have over 1.6 million followers on Instagram, the millennial therapist. What is there about your approach or your message that obviously is connecting with people in a really big way? Um, I feel so lucky to have my community. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things I would like to... <laughs> You know, I'm like, it's probably this. It's also a lot of good timing. And and I feel like I'm very lucky. But what happened early on in my Instagram career was that I kind of started before it was a cool thing. to. I, I started right as it was taking off, right? Mm -hmm. And so some people call me the OG and I like it. I'm like, <laughs> like I, I was in the movement, but really there weren't that many accounts floating around. I think when I really got into it, of course there were. And what I noticed was that everyone was like, I am a this kind of really, I talk about this kind of problem. And I remember sitting there and being like, oh my God, what is my thing? Like, what is my thing? Am I, am I only talking about trauma? Because I was a trauma specialist, identity specialist. It's like, is that all I'm going to talk about? And I it was like, what is Sarah the therapist? How is she presenting to the world? And that was really nerve wracking. Um, and then it was not enjoyable. It was not fun. So the, for the first couple months, I was like, I'm not enjoying this. And it doesn't feel like a natural form of self-expression feels quite forced. And then I realized I just don't want to do this. And so my conclusion was, I'm going to share what it means to be human, the highs and the lows from my perspective, a perspective that's, you know, um, colored with my education and my life experience and my clinical experience. And I'm going to make it as authentic as humanly possible and as raw as humanly possible and see if that does anything. Because I think at the core, we all share human experiences. So instead of trying to be like Sarah, the therapist, it was like, here is how I see the world, or here is how I see my clients see the world, or here is how I see, you know, um, and I hope that it resonates. And I think it did. And so that was, that was really liberating for me. <laughs> I think it did. I think it did. I just want to add to that. I, I notice so often that uh, when we look at people on Instagram, social comparison, or even all areas of life, look at someone who's having success and we assume that it's an overnight thing. When really, if you just <laughs> no. peel back a little bit more, there are, there are years and hours and a lot of grit that no one ever, ever sees. It sounds like that's part of your story as well. This didn't just happen during COVID when all of a sudden 1.6 million people no. said, aha, the millennial <laughs> therapist. No, and I think there's just so much, you know, there's so much education and sleepless nights and exams that go into this. And there's so many failed posts and there are so many tears <laughs> and there's so much bullying online and there's so much, like there's just so much that comes with it. And again, I'm very, very privileged to have found success in, in this kind of, if I can say success, but in this kind of area, sure. but at the same time, there's just so much and people don't understand that sometimes they still look at algorithms and I go, why isn't this working? What am I doing wrong? What is, and so, yeah, it's not, you're just showing up, writing something you like and posting it. There is, you know, it is still work. Um, so if you're failing or struggling while you're listening to this, um, I've been there and I'm constantly in and out of there. 
and that's just part of the process. At some point, you just have to kind of embrace it. <laughs> it's good. And yeah, if you're one of the few that have not yet following Sarah on Instagram at the Millennial Therapist, do I have that right exactly? At the Millennial Therapist. Millennial dot therapist. Oh, okay, good. Because I think there is someone millennial therapist. I think that name was taken, so I took millennial dot therapist. (laughs) Okay, good good clarification. Okay, your book, um, it's on you. Um, I'm sorry. It's on me. Your (laughs) book. I'm I'm projecting. Uh, Your book... Your book, it's on me. The first, the first phrase in the book is a question: Are you happy? Uh, mm-hmm. Jarring. And why did you start out with that question? That seems the foundation of it all. Yeah, I think it's because that is the question that broke me. I think that is the question that I haven't really asked myself um, or wanted to ask myself, and I had an introduction that had like three sentences setting the scene. And then I had the question, are you happy? And I had a friend look at the manuscript and go, "Um, I think you just need to start with that question because that's where your journey started. And that was amazing feedback. (laughs) I was like, Mm. yes, this is it. Um, But that question would have been, you know, the top three sentence. Uh, And I think for me, a lot of people, we need to be really careful. A lot of people when they're achieving something or like, They have a child, they bought a house, they got a promotion, they graduated from high school. You go, oh my gosh, you must be so happy. Right. That that is not a question. That's an imposition. And (laughs) I think what was interesting was that I was sitting with a friend and I was telling him about my quote unquote, like, hey, I got engaged. Hey, I'm in grad school. Hey, I'm doing all these wonderful things. And instead of him saying, I'm so happy for you, he went, are you happy? And, um, yeah, I've never really, I've never been brave enough to ask myself that question. And so he asked it for me. And that was the beginning of kind of my unraveling, my spiraling, my, my, the depth of my self loss that I experienced. How did that come about, Sarah? Um, your, the, the self loss or that moment when it all came crashing down? So it was multiple moments. I think, you know, um, my self loss. I, I I would argue I had a really hard time creating my sense of self in the per- first place, given all the childhood trauma in terms uh. of I was in survival mode rather than um, self-awareness mode or self-expression mode or self-creation. I was still living as if I was in a perpetual state of threat. I think that really contributed to it. But I, I talk about how my early 20s and some to some extent, were more painful than my childhood. And that's because I was a willing participant in my self-betrayal. I was a willing participant in the decisions I was making that were so inauthentic and that led to the self-loss, that led to this separation, that led to the point where I looked in a mirror and didn't recognize myself. I think that contribution was really painful. As a child, I was a victim. As an adult, I was the perpetrator of my own loss. And so I think, you know, there are so many moments that led to me feeling this way. And then that question was one of the first times I recognized it. And there's something really painful when you recognize it. But I remember like crying at that restaurant with my friend being really distraught, having a moment in a mirror where I looked at myself and was like, I hate this person. I don't know this person, like really intense, intense emotions that I start up my book with. And then I went home, watched Friends in my hotel room, 
<laughs> ordered a burrito and went to bed and was like, wow, <laughs> sweet. You did it. Cool. That was, that was yeah. a moment of, you know, and, and it wasn't, that was just the beginning of me recognizing the loss and feeling the pain, but I thought that was it. I was like, wow, one really bad night. I did it. I aced it. So the self-loss, uh, I've heard you say in an interview, maybe I read it in your book, that it is part of the human condition. Do I have that right? And if so, are you saying that all of us are, uh, I'm putting, I'm connecting some dots, I probably shouldn't, but all of us, well, we may be living, we may be experiencing self-loss and we just don't know it? So I'm saying it's one of the, I think, greatest human sufferings that has gone unacknowledged because it's not a diagnosis. And I think there's oh. a lot of ways for us to suffer that is not a diagnosis. Um, I, a human condition in terms that every human is susceptible to it and can experience it. Do I think everybody has experienced self-loss? No. Do I think everyone has experienced inauthenticity, which is like a step before self-loss? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, I think I think it's very common to do things that are inauthentic or show up in an inauthentic way. Uh, but do I think everyone suffered from self-loss? No. Do I think a lot of people have? Yeah. I need <laughs> some empirical research on this. <laughs> uh, yes, for sure. So the two questions, who am I? Why am I here? The question of who am I? That feels yeah. like a question that just cannot be answered. Am I just, am I just uh, giving up here or coach me a little bit? No, I, I think it's a, it's a provocative question. It's a difficult question. And I don't think it's a question that can be answered cognitively, as in verbally. So when I say, who are you? I don't think you can give me a comprehensive answer just by talking to me. I think the answer of who am I is answered by the way we live. So of course you need to have an understanding of your roles and your sense of morality and, you know, the way that you recognize yourself and identify with yourself. However, I don't think the sense of self exists without expression. And so the way that you show up in the world is who you are. And I have a quote that's like, you might like this or not, but who you are in this moment is who you are. You can have these, you know, thoughts about I am such and such person, but if your actions do not reflect that, you're not genuinely that person or you haven't become that version of yourself yet. And so I do think that who am I is something that's lived and experienced, not just something that's cognitively answered. So uh, this is a little more pop psychology on my part. By the way, my background is if you couldn't tell that I have no psychology background, I, I, I shouldn't have to explain that. But one of the things that um, I've talked about and, and we've done podcast episodes on, if you want to know what someone values, don't look at what they say, look at where they spend their time. Is that, that related at all to what you're saying? Um, yeah. I mean, when people say, I don't know how to identify my value, I'll usually get them to write down everything they did in a day and how much time they spent on it. And it's not that you value video games. It's that you value connection maybe because you're talking to your mates over the mic as you're killing zombies. I don't know. Yeah, that is that's... <laughs> Racing cars. I don't, do you know what I mean? I like it's it. like, what is driving that behavior? That's usually the value. Um, or yeah. escapism, which is also really great to to identify. But I think, you know, um, we would like to think that the self is this really beautiful thing that we can construct and then preserve and it's inside of us and it can never be changed or altered and we can always go back to it. And it's like, that's why people go say, go find yourself as if that self already exists somewhere. It was right. given to you and it's perfect. Um, 
And this is saying you create yourself through your actions. And that's a very different vibe. And that is not a comfortable vibe because I think a lot of us create a very inauthentic self. Mm. And I don't think there's a neutral self. There's no like, hey, I did this today and it has a neutral impact on me. It's like you did this today and you're either in alignment with yourself and who you want to be or you're not. That particular action. There is no middle lukewarm oh, well, this has no consequence on me. And I think that that's a lot of responsibility and it sounds a bit tedious. Okay, you're taking us deep here. By the way, if I may revert back Mm -hmm. to, yeah, playing games, the zombie, that is Call of Duty, just so you know. Um, Oh, thank you. uh... That is what it's called, yeah. (laughs) You can tell I did not game. (laughs) Well, I I, over the holidays, I gamed with my kids and I was, uh, it wasn't pretty. But anyway, one of the things that uh, I appreciate about you is that, well, the book even even, uh, gives us some clues on this. It's on me. Accept hard truths, discover yourself, and change your life. One of those hard truths that you have in your book is this. Who you are in this moment, whether you are on a plane, sitting at your kitchen table, or on your bed, is who you really are. If you don't like who that is, it is up to you to do something about it. That feels very direct to me. And tell me a little bit more about that statement. Not in a bad way, but that's very laser-focused saying your actions and it's up to you to change it. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't shy away from hard truth. I'm quite direct in my approach. Yes, you are. Um, and I think I and I think it's needed. I, I, I actually don't think it's helpful not to tell the truth. And sometimes that truth is difficult to hear. But not telling someone um, that they're responsible for who they become, I don't think is doing them any favors. I also find responsibility an incredibly empowering and liberating concept. I never see it as a shaming or blaming concept. So I think it depends what your relationship with responsibility is with how harsh this statement seems. If you think it's pointing fingers, if you think it's shaming, if you don't like who you are in that moment, that's going to be a really intense statement. If you look at the statement and go, wow, I am so free and so liberated to be the person I want to be that. Yeah, it's a hard truth, but it's actually a really nice kind of peppy truth. So I think a lot of that opens some space up for projections. But I think the way that you relate to that statement actually tells you a lot about the relationship you have with yourself. Mm. Um, and and yeah, I, I think responsibility is great. I think I, I, I have very positive connotations because it was only when I started being responsible for my life that I wanted to actually live it. I did not enjoy my life prior to that. Tell me more about that. What was the situation you were living through when you realized you weren't living your life or enjoying your life? By the way, if I may, at 24 Mm -hmm. years old, just from the certain, you had the world by the tail. Oh my gosh, for any 24 year old be doing what you were doing, you should have, here's my should statement. You should have been just over the moon happy. Exactly. It's why I was trying to convince myself that I was happy. <laughs> I was like, you have no reason to be unhappy. Everyone in the world is telling you should be happy. The girl from the bomb shelter, the seven-year-old would have looked at you now and been like, wow, you're amazing. And yet you're here feeling incredibly anxious and depressed and not really wanting to be alive. So why? And I think the thing about it is you can accomplish all the things in the world But unless they align with you, unless they're an expression of yourself, they're not going to mean anything. Meaninglessness is a huge, very real concept. And everything, I picked the wrong relationship to be in. I 
the only thing I kept from that time in my life was my love for psychology. Mm. <laughs> Everything else, my friends, my relationship with my family, my some were everything changed geographical location changed literally everything about my life in that moment changed and it wasn't easy and I had no funds to do it I think a lot of people are like well you just kind of got up it's like I had $800 in my bank account I was getting a divorce and I went to back to Serbia to face my trauma this wasn't like I went to Bali and I tanned and I had thousands of dollars in sponsors. And then I was like, I found myself, you know, it was not an experience like that. And for me, it was just, I felt during my panic attacks, which was one of the repercussions or one of the manifestations of my loss, I thought I was going to die. And there was a very clear moment where I went, I want to live before I die. And I want my life to feel like my own. I felt like I was checking off all the checklists for other people, even people that didn't ask me to do it for them, I did it. And so I, it was my time to take distance from the space I've co-created with others and actually allow myself to be the only common denominator. So when you're traveling and you're experiencing different cultures and different foods and different spaces and different mattresses, whatever you're like, the only thing that stays the same is you and you start to see patterns of like, oh, here's a little common thread. And that was incredibly helpful for me, although unnerving. So my journey uh, during that time, I, I, I actually had to remove myself from my life quite severely. And I'm not suggesting everyone has to do that. But I think my loss was so deep that any part of that lingering was very painful. And it didn't allow me to create my sense of self. So Sarah, as you were creating that sense of self during that time, was it intentional, your path going back to Serbia and every every move you took or looking back on it now, it just makes a lot of sense what you were doing? Um, yeah, I mean, going to Europe was definitely intentional. Going to Serbia was very intentional. Um, I have maybe gone back once, twice max before that time. Um, and so I went back to like the town where I grew up and where the bomb shelters were. I went back to town where, you know, my school was. I went to, I very much separated myself from the Serbian culture and the heritage because there was just so much pain and I didn't want to identify with any of it. So I identified fully as a Canadian. And so um, it was an interesting thing to go and listen to the music and get like, just be immersed in the culture again, a culture that very much informs me and a culture that I very much accept now <laughs> as part yes. of my identity. But there was just, it, I, I kind of went, well, life is already hell. How much worse can I get? Let me just fully immerse myself. It's going to be like the Phoenix experience or it's going to kill me. And that's fine. I'm okay. Either way. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable story. In your book, there's a quote here. It's a killer quote from Soren Kierkegaard. And it's um, this podcast, as you know, it's I Dare You. And you've got a great quote here. It mm -hmm. says, to dare is to lose one's footing momentarily. Not to dare is to lose oneself. Piece that together for me. How's that fit into this whole discussion about uh, losing self or finding self? Yeah, I think... So many of us live on autopilot because we're so scared to disrupt whatever script we have in our minds, whatever expectations we have in our minds. And so we don't even try. And I think so many of us take the easy way um, or sometimes it's not easy. It's the only way we know how, uh, as, as for me in my 
early 20s um, until my early 20s. And so we don't want to disrupt anything because it's too scary. Um, and then we realized that this lack of disruption to the life we have now might be the thing that's actually hurting us or causing us pain or separating us or making us existentially feel dead. Um, and so I like that quote because in reality, every action and inaction has a consequence. And we think that an inaction or being passive in our lives is the safer thing to do. And I don't think that that's true. I actually think it's the complete opposite. You have to perpetually be creating your sense of self. It is not stagnant. It is not um, concrete in terms of you do it once and that's it. You should be a very different person a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. Um, and so I like that he has this like really empowered, like dare to do the things that scare you because the loss that you're going to experience if you don't is so deep and so severe. And he has other great quotes of like, if you lose things like your wife, your keys, I mean, he's being funny. He's like, you would notice yet we <laughs> lose ourselves and we don't notice. How is that even possible? Hmm. Obviously I'm like summarizing his quote. And I think sure. that that's, <laughs> this is not how he said, although he did use wife as an example. So I, I, I love that of like, there, there's a consequence to an action. And sometimes, you know, the loss of self is so severe and is so profound. And it's something that we should deliberately be um, trying never to experience. That's good. You know, again, another pop psychology heads up and coming your way. So at the end of it, I love when, it. When, I, when I do, when I do public speaking at some meetings, or at the very end, there'll be a point where I'm asking people to make a decision. It's at the end of the mm -hmm. meeting. We've, you've heard a lot of training, a lot of good information about what could happen in your life. So now what's your decision going to be? And if you say yes, here's what you need to do. But don't mistake the fact that if you say no, that is still a decision. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like mm -hmm. in part about what you're saying, correct? In other words, you may not decide to take that fork in the road but by staying right where you are, that is still a decision. And I think for me, I miss that a lot, but I think a lot of people miss that. Yes. Absolutely. I miss that a lot too. A lack of choice is still a choice. A lack mm. of decision to do a particular thing is still a decision to do another thing. Again, no neutral path, no pause button. It's Whatever you're doing is a choice. Even if you're choosing to do the same thing over and over again, every day that you do it, it's a brand new choice. Hmm. Sarah, I like you. I like you a lot. Um, Thank you. You've given, you <laughs> Thank have given you. so many interviews. One thing, I am blown away about how you are so passionate about sharing this insight and knowledge with others. So Sarah, what is the best way to follow you and all the cool work that you're doing? Where should we go? Yeah, so millennial.therapist on Instagram is probably my primary uh, platform. And then I started Substack, which I'm really passionate about. It's going to be a really big emphasis for me. So that's, if you're unfamiliar, like a newsletter blog sort of sphere. And it's called Notes from My Phone. Um, that's because I have a lot of thoughts throughout the day. And I'll write them down quickly on my phone. And then I'll write articles out of them or share those notes with everybody. Um, and I have... I started something called the Phenomenological Society. It's also on this blog. And that's if you're really into existentialism. And you want to learn more about existentialism, this is more like the philosophy side of things. Well, notes for my phone are the psychology side of things. So that's kind of uh, where I'm at. And you can get my book anywhere books are sold. That's good. Name of the book, It's On Me, Accept Hard Truths, Discover Yourself, and Change Your Life. Sarah, at the end of every podcast, I ask all mm -hmm. my guests, what is your I Dare You challenge for all of us? So I cannot wait for this. 
What would you dare us to do or try in order to live a better life? What do you think? Oh, that's a hard one, but I'll be, <laughs> I'll be nice. So I dare you to do this for a month. It's a journaling exercise. At the end of each day, answer one question. What did you learn about yourself? We live in this constant, um, I don't want to say delusion, but like illusion that we know who we are just because we are who we are. You know, we're like, I, I know who I am. And then we don't observe, we don't pay attention, we don't check in. And this is an actually really difficult question to answer if you're not paying attention to yourself. What did you learn about yourself today? Did it reinforce the belief you had? Did it shatter the belief you have? Did it shock you that you honked and flipped someone off when you drove? Like, <laughs> what did you learn? What was the trigger today? What, what helped you relax? Relax. So I think it's just a really fun way to start your journey of creating that self and being more intentional. I like that I dare you challenge. That's really good. So Sarah, this has been a treat, you know, all the way from Australia. I mentioned before we started recording, had I known you were in Australia, I would have missed, messed up the time zones, but we made it happen. It has been such an honor having you on this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with all of us. Thank you so much for having me and for all the wonderful questions. Okay, that was the Millennial Therapist, Dr. Sarah Kubrick. If you are not following her yet on Instagram, I invite you to go there straight away. And it is at millennial.therapist. That is Dr. Sarah Kubrick. And while you're there, make sure you follow the I Dare You podcast as well, at I Dare You Pod. There you'll find video snippets of all of our interviews, but including this one with Sarah. And would love to join you in that community, and I will meet you there. You know, Sarah's book, It's On Me, it is, uh, I, I read a lot of books in this podcast, and this one is one that I'm going to be gifting to others, just so you know how I view this book, uh, It's On Me. In fact, Simon Sinek, I know a lot of you know who Simon Sinek is. Uh, if you're a podcast listener, I think you understand the power that he has uh, as far as his thought process. Here, here's his review. If human beings came with a manual, It's On Me would be it. And I'm not Simon Sinek, but I have to agree with him on this book. It's, it's dynamite. All right, what's the one thing you're going to take away from this interview that you're going to implement in your life? I think your I Dare You challenge is perfect, is it not? To be able to journal that and to ask yourself that question and to discover more about ourselves. I also think her take on self-loss and how it's very easy to get distracted and to move away from who we authentically are and we live an inauthentic self that is really hanging with me. So I'm, I'm really thinking about, I'm really hyper aware right now, aware is that happening in my life? How about for you? Now that you listened, who are you thinking of right now that would benefit from this episode with Dr. Sarah Kubrick? So whoever that is for you, I invite you to don't wait, send it today. And finally, thanks for listening. If you've noticed, we do not have any advertisers here. Uh, you don't have to wait eight minutes to get into the action listening to ads. We get right into it. And we do that because you are the ad budget. So thank you so much for listening and for sharing. We are growing like gangbusters. And that is only because of you. To say that I appreciate you is just simply an understatement. I can't say it often enough. So let me do it one more time. Thank you for listening. And thank you for sharing. That was episode 107, everyone. And now episode 108 is just a week away. I can't wait for you to hear another episode of I Dare You. We'll see you back here next week. I'll meet you there.